Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. Please open your Bibles with us and join us as we study through the book of Psalms. For more information about our church, please visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that uh, as Matt preaches, that you would open our eyes to see your word, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your word, that it could be written there. We just give you glory and praise in all. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks, you may be seated. Last week... (coughs) As we looked at the Psalms of meditation, what it means to fix our hearts and minds on the steadfast word of the Lord, we were reminded from Luke 6.45 that the good person draws from the good treasure, that, that which is of God's word, that which is of God's kingdom, that they not just have, but they hide within their heart and mind, that which they choose to think about, they spend their time and emotion upon. And yet that verse was contrasted with the evil person who draws from an evil treasure. Evil things, unholy and unrighteous things that they have chosen to spend their life and their energies upon, given their thoughts, lives, and emotions to. We see the evidence of that when we sin. And we would love to say we're all either in this camp or in that camp, uh, but if we are honest with ourselves and our neighbors, we can say, there are times where I treasure the wrong thing. In fact, sometimes I have treasured the wrong thing for so long, it is leaking out of every area of my life. Oh, and if that's you this morning, I I just want to begin by saying, don't lose heart. Don't give up hope. We're going to look this morning at God's remedy for that. What what is the hope for ruined sinners? And it is that God has provided a means for our redemption. That in Christ, uh, that which was forever and eternally broken before a holy and righteous God can be ransomed and brought back in. Not just as someone who's put on probation, but as sons and daughters. So we're going to look this morning at Psalms of Penitence. 
Not that which we do to make ourselves right before God, but in light of His great mercy towards helpless sinners like you and I. Ruined sinners like you and I. That our hearts are penitent before Almighty God. Penitent is not a word we use very much anymore in our day and age. Outside of uh, perhaps a church setting, and even that seems to be a little bit of a higher church setting. So I put in the bulletin a definition for you of penitence. A state of being. Regret for one's wrongdoing or sin. Not just, not just the consequences of it. And not just, I, I did this bad thing and I got this bad result. I don't like the bad result and so I'm sorry for it. No, it's an actual grieving over our sin. Regret for one's wrongdoing or sinning marked by contrition. Marked by this, this heart that is broken over not just the consequences of our sin, but our sin as an offense against a holy God. And then typified by repentance by that turning from sin. Too often we think of repentance as just saying, I'm sorry, but that's not it. It's actually when we put feet to that and we turn and walk away from our sin. It should come to us as no surprise, given that Calvin described the Psalms as an anatomy of the soul, describing every human emotion within the Psalms itself, that we would here find language for the sorrow over our sin. Prayers and songs of brokenness, of turning from sin's devastation towards God's restoration in your life. Oh, how often have you felt the ache crying out to God from the depths, as we read in Psalm 130, feeling so far that you doubt that God can even hear you, that God would even want to hear you. When the frustration over your sin and over the circumstances it has created turns to self-pity and a wallowing in sinful self-indulgence. Maybe it's at that point that you, like so many others, have turned to another God to satisfy in that moment. A God of drunkenness to alleviate the feelings of the moment. A God like pornography or promiscuity that would alleviate the pain that you're feeling and replace it at least just for the moment with some sort of happiness. Those are easy to spot. Maybe it's actually a harder, maybe it's a more difficult idol that has crept into your heart. Maybe someone has wronged you and you have given up deciding to just indulge thoughts of unforgiveness bitterness, complete hardness towards another person. That's more difficult because so often we look at that and we feel justified. Yes, but you don't know what they did. You don't know what they said. You don't know how that felt. And yet, that unresolved unforgiveness leading to bitterness puts us us at odds with God's clear command to forgive those who wrong us, to bless those who curse us. Here's why that one is so dangerous. Given time, your heart will grow more and more cold and distant. Only it's not just distant from this one person who was the initial focus or this this organization or the situation was the focus of our angst and anger. 
Now our heart is growing cold and distant, and it begins separating us, not just from people, but from the daily life in God's Word. Come on, be honest. When you have struggled with those emotional feelings of devastation, how quick are you to run to God's Word? Oh, maybe in a moment. Maybe on the day that it all crashes and you go, God, there's got to be something of help and hope for me on these pages. And yet, within a couple days, within a couple weeks, it just sort of drifts away. It separates us from God's Word. That happens right away in your heart, in your life, and you see it, but we don't. Those around you, we don't notice it. We may notice that you're going through a time of discouragement, but we don't see that you've pulled away from God's Word. We don't see it in the church, at least not right away. Then after a while, it begins to separate you from God's people. You spend less and less time around God's people. You begin drifting from fellowship because you have no desire for it. It begins more and more broken relationships to pop up in your life because you have no desire to be reconciled. And now it's visible to everyone. You thought you had hit it. You thought you had buried it so well deep down inside. But now everyone can see that the joy of your salvation is gone. Your passion is gone. And by the way, everyone on the worship team sees it. Maybe, maybe not at the people out there, but we're looking at you. And as the rest of the congregation stands to say, God, my life was a train wreck. In fact, still is. But you alone can rescue. You alone can save. And so we lift up our eyes to the giver of life. My, my life's a wreck. You're my only hope, and you're doing this. see it. Now that's not to say do anything different because anyone else sees it. I'm just telling you if you are at that point in your walk with God, what you thought was hidden is leaking out all over the place. The joy of your salvation is gone. Friend, if you are here this morning and that is your story, please don't give up. Please hang in there because restoration and hope are coming. There is joy to be found again in the presence of God who has known that. He knows where you're at and has already worked to save you. I better quit right there. I'm going to skip to the end of the sermon right now. Here's what happens eventually. You keep that up long enough and you are eventually, you start missing church more and more. You start missing community group more and more and eventually you're just gone. Separated from the body separated from the church, the ecclesia, the gathering of the living God, with no thought of the gospel and a dust-covered Bible, self-absorbed, a sin-filled heart, and a general disdain and even hostility towards the church and church people. Only if you're a Christian, here's what's coming down the road. At some point, God opens your eyes and you see it. And here's why. Because when our God saves, he saves, Hebrews 7.25 says, to the uttermost. Beyond where you can reach it, beyond where your sin and brokenness can reach it, our sins, they are many. Come on, church, but his mercy 
Oh, it's good news. Even if we forget it, he does not forsake us, Hebrews 13.5 says. And so the Spirit of God comes after you. He convicts your heart of sin until we see the mess that our sin and our choices have made in our lives and the lives of those around us. And it's from that place that Psalm 130 verse 1 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark down my iniquities, if you're keeping track of every wrong thought and deed and word, O God, who could stand before you? And the rhetorical answer is, no one, including me. Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I want us to look at these psalms this morning. We're going to begin with Psalm 130, and it is a cry from darkness. We'll see next as we look at Psalm 51. As David's going to say in verse 3, My transgressions, my sins, they're always before me. They're, They're all that I can see. Man, when that's you, when you're in that position, what do you do? What do you do when you feel judged and condemned by others? Even worse, what do you do when you feel judged and condemned by your own conscience? And I would say that's the entire point of Psalm 130. It's the fill in the blank for you in your bulletin. That in those moments, God's people hope in God. When I feel hopeless, when I can find no hope in myself, in situations, or people around me, here's what God's people do. They hope in God. The God who says with me, all things are possible. The God who raises the dead. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Verse 7, O Israel, O God's people, hope in the Lord. Why does he have to tell us to hope in the Lord? Because so frequently our eyes fall from the sovereign king upon his throne to the mud in which we find ourselves. The brokenness of this world in which we find ourselves. And so in their day, as in ours, God's people are commanded, not called, not invited, commanded, hope in the Lord. Weary Christian, hope in the Lord. Sinful Christian, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. You think there's not enough salvation in that cup to cover the vastness of your sins. And he says, no, with the Lord there is plentiful redemption. How beautiful are the stories that we have heard. How beautiful are the stories in your family where God hasn't just poured salvation into your cup, but he's poured plentiful salvation and it's spilled down onto those who are around you. Families, it's spilling down onto your children right now. It's spilling down from generations who are seeing the faithfulness of God. With him, there is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel. Not he might. Not he will if things work out well, if the right people get elected or the circumstances turn. He will redeem his people from all their iniquities. 
That does not mean, friend, that God will save you from every bad situation that you find yourself in. In fact, God so often has worked into that bad situation that in it you might trust in Him in a way you never would have had it not come along. We'd have just continued to trust in ourselves. So right from the beginning, I said I wasn't going to skip ahead, but right from the beginning I want to give the invitation that should come at the end If you are cold and distant, if you're cold and distant from God's word and from God's people, hear the command lovingly coming from the lips of our Savior, repent and return right now. We're not guaranteed the next breath or heartbeat. You're not guaranteed you might make it to the end of this sermon. By the grace of God, no one has ever died in the middle of one of my sermons, but it's possible. We kind of laugh at that, but should that be you in this moment and you stand before God, is there a fear in the back of your heart? I am cold and distant. I have been indulging sin in my life and selfishness in my life. I don't know what that meeting is going to look like. Right now, turn to the Lord. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Remember, I said that progression earlier. How this works is more and more a gradual hardening, a gradual drifting, until you find yourself so far that you have no desire to turn to the Lord. Oh, look to him now. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. That's where the battle is won or lost. Uh, Not in how you feel, not what's going on around you, what you allow yourself to meditate upon, forsaking his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Turn with me to Psalm 51. That was the cry from darkness in that dark and desperate place. And I I wish I could attach to it the emotion of this because so often we read Scripture, especially in church, almost from a clinical, detached place. But there is anguish attached to these psalms. There's a darkness that you thought you were the only one who had ever felt that kind of separation from God. Psalm 51, David writes this, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying, from the beginning of my life, sin has been the story. It's what I've wanted. It's what I've pursued. But in contrast, verse 6, behold, you delight in truth. In the inward being. And so he prays, teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy 
and gladness. Listen where David puts the onus on what has happened to him. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. God, this is your hand that has broken me. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my my mouth. I will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. If sacrifice, if my work, if what I do could fix this gap between me and God, I would do it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord. There are times in our digital age, and they crack me up every once in a while, where you open up some form of social media, and thanks to some sort of AI, it gives you an image or a post that's a flashback to seven years ago or 11 years ago. And it it usually has some sort of story attached to it, and we get it. Those of us who are a little older remember things like this. Just a box full of old pictures. Old pictures that, as you look at them, they they bring back memories, and yet they can also stir up arguments. Hey, what was this? When was this? Oh, I think that's this or this. No, couldn't have been there because so-and-so wasn't even born yet. It had to be over here while we were living. Anybody had those conversations before? Yeah, yeah. No young hands going up at all. Well, David, the psalmist here in Psalm 51, this, this gut-wrenching cry for forgiveness in light of this sin that is always before him gives us the dates on the back of the picture. He tells us exactly when this happened and why this happened. So, kids, I want you to do something. Open up your Bible and look at Psalm 51 at the superscription. That, that's the little heading that's above it. Kids, how many of you have your Bible in here today? All right, we're going to remedy that right now. Because we said that the good person draws out of the good treasure. Remember when we were uh, memorizing Scripture in Ephesians 1 and 2, which, by the way, we're we're starting in Luke 2 now, uh, that we had this little treasure box that you saw up here, and you're probably thinking, why aren't they giving away the treasure again Uh, Well, we are. So, Daniel, where are you at? You want to come help me? I need every kid in this place to come back up here right now. Because here's the real treasure that we want you to hide in your heart. Now, when we give these to you, take them home and write your names in them. Oh, they're just going to park it.
look how well we've trained our kids. Uh, by the way, for the adults, if you don't have a Bible either, uh, you can have another one. And you can give it to somebody else that might need it. Although adults, I'll let you in on a secret. Uh, we got these to hand out, and the, the print is so tiny that if you're not 31 years old or younger, it's a gray page. You know what I'm saying? Ain't nothing on here. Which concerns me for Brett back in the back, because I heard he's 29. He's almost 30. Like, very soon, brother, there ain't going to be nothing on this page for you. <laughs> Here is our prayer for these kids, though, and we pray this every week that God's word would dwell richly in their hearts. Because they're here, I'm going to pray for them one more time because I get to. So, Lord, that is our prayer for these precious boys and girls that they would take more than just a paperback book, they would take your word, which is living and active and sharper than a two edged sword, and they would hide it in their heart. God, we pray it would pierce their souls. Pray your word would speak to them, would be alive, that your spirit would cause it to be real food and real drink, that they might feast upon Christ and his great salvation, that their eyes might be open to the gospel found on these pages, preserved by the blood of martyrs throughout centuries. Let your word be precious to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, write your name in those. Bring them back next week. You're welcome. All right, so help them out. When did David write this gut-wrenching prayer of his sin? When a guy named Nathan, who's the prophet, the prophet... Kids was the guy who God would speak to. We didn't have God's word yet, and so would you mind dragging this off to the side? Perfect. God would speak to him, and then he would speak to the people the very words of God. And he goes to David, and he tells David a story, but he says it in a way that doesn't sound like a story. He says it like to David the king, hey, we got a problem with somebody in the kingdom. You see, there's, there's a guy, and we find this in uh, 2 Samuel verse chapter 12, there's a guy who's rich, and there's a guy who was poor, and they were neighbors. And the guy who was poor had this precious little ewe lamb, this tiny little lamb that he loved and cared for. In fact, so much cared for that he had it living in the house as a pet. Uh, it ate from his table. It drank from his cup. By the way, that's gross. I'm just saying that because I've seen some of y'all feed your dog off the fork that you're eating with. You need help, all right? That's what I'm telling you. You need help. Amen. Says he loved this little lamb like his own daughter. And the rich man had some friends who were coming to visit. He wanted to throw a big party. And he had all these resources, and yet he saw this cute little adorable lamb. And he says, you know what would make a great dinner? That poor man's lamb. And so he takes it because he's stronger, and he can, and he kills it. And they eat it. And by the time Nathan is done telling the story, David is furious. He's hearing this as if this is a real person in his kingdom. And you, O king, have to decide what to do. And David is so incensed that he says, that man 
deserves to die. Not just because of a lamb, because he took something precious to this other family and he shattered it right in front of them. And Nathan looks at him and he says, O king, you're the man. You're the one who deserves to die because of what you have done to your friend Uriah the Hittite. A Hittite is a, uh, it's an ethnic designation, which means he's from the people of Canaan, not of God's people, the Hebrew, the Jewish people. And yet evidently his family has been part of God's people, has believed in God for quite some time because Uriah's name actually uh, has a designation uh, with God's name within it. It means the Lord, Yahweh, is my light. They weren't allowed to intermix with the Canaanites because they worshipped other gods, but clearly Uriah's family has become believers in the one true God because they named their baby, this one true God, Yahweh, is my light. He's one of David's closest friends. He's one of his mighty men, of 30 men who uh, were warriors who fought beside him from the beginning. He's so close to David that he's allowed to live virtually next door to the palace. We know this because with what's going to happen, David is able to look down into Uriah's house. 2 Samuel 11 tells us uh, he's one of David's mighty men. uh, And David's mighty men, along with the rest of the army, are off fighting. Now, in that day, as they're off fighting, uh, David is at home. He's in his palace. But kids, this is long before palaces or houses had air conditioning. Anybody else get really hot over the summer? You're like, oh, I'm so hot. Uh, David uh, is hot enough that he goes up, probably in the cool of the evening, up to the roof of his house. They didn't have air conditioning, so they, they would have big flat roofs that sort of served as summer kind of like a lot of you go camping. It was sort of like camping in your own house. You could camp up on top. And as he's there, he's looking down into what was probably Uriah's courtyard. And in that time, he sees Uriah's wife. There's no running water in those days, so there's no bathroom for her to be in. She was in the courtyard. She was in seclusion in her house. Unless somebody is looking down from the next house over, they can't see her, but she's taking a bath in the courtyard. And he lusts after her. Just like the man in the story lusted after that little lamb. And so he takes her, and she gets pregnant. Here's the problem. Her husband is off at war. It's not his baby. It can't be his baby. And so he calls his friend home and says, Come home. Make it look like this is your baby. Kids, if you need more description, ask mom and dad what that means. They would love to tell you. Only he won't go home. He says, how can I go home and sleep in my bed and sleep with my wife when the rest of the army of the living God is sleeping in a tent out in a field in the middle of the battle? I won't go. And so he stays just outside of David's palace with David's servants, seeing himself as a servant of the king. And so David tries again the next night, only this time he gets him drunk. Surely, when all of his inhibitions are down, he'll go home to his wife. But he does the same thing. And so David sends a note back with his best friend. Because he trusts him so much, he knows he will not open that seal of the king. He will not read the note. And here's what was inside of the note. That Uriah delivered with his own hand 
to the other commanders of the army, 2 Samuel 11, verse 15, in the letter he wrote, by the way, this puts David in friend of the year category, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. He murders his friend that he can take his wife. And then he does that. He's dead, so he takes Bathsheba into his house as his own wife. He's already got her pregnant. And now he murders his friend to cover it up. He brings the pregnant widow into his house to start their happy family. Because, of course, what do you do when you already have seven other wives? You need to add one more to the mix. That's really what's going to fulfill me. Uh, David had seven wives when this happens. And the prophet comes to him and says, You're the man. This is your sin that you just condemned this other guy to die. Only it's worse than what I described to you. And 2 Samuel 12, verse 13 to 15, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The first step is acknowledging, is confessing my sin. I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord, has al- the Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. It's already covered. It, what a beautiful picture. We don't have time to develop all of this. Uh, David lived under the sacrificial system, and he didn't have to go out and make the sacrifice because all of that had been pointing towards Christ. Jesus has already paid for this, even though it hadn't even happened yet. And yet there's consequences. Nevertheless, verse 14, Because by this deed, and it was utterly scorned by the Lord, the child who you bore shall die. And Nathan went from his house. And in that context, David cries out in anguish of soul, Have mercy on me, O God. Not because I deserve it, not because I'm good enough, not because my eyes are finally open and I've seen it. No, have mercy on me because of your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. For all I can see is my transgression. All I can see is my sin. It's ever before me. I I love the line when he says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. God, you broke me in my sin that I might look to you. Bring healing in such a way that there's rejoicing. Again, hide your face from my sin. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Friends, here's the next fill in the blank for you, and this is huge. Hidden sin will destroy you. But God hears our cry for mercy, forgives us, and cleanses us. Why do we keep the sin hidden? Because we think if anybody really knows, they will not accept us. They will not forgive us. And here's the promise of our saving God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David points in this psalm to the sacrifices under that old covenant offered again and again to cover up and appease the wrath of a holy God. And then he says that's not enough. Verse 10, he says an interesting thing. I actually had a visual of this because I think a lot of times we read it and we don't think about it. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The imagery was of you going to sacrifice. And you bring your lamb 
to be the substitute for your sins. And you bring it to the priest, and uh, he would, I'll spare you kind of the gross details, but he would probably cut its throat and bleed uh, most of it out into a bowl. Uh, It would then be basically butchered. Uh, Some of it would be consumed on the altar as a whole burnt offering, so all of it would be burned up. Some of it is kind of more like a barbecue that we offer it to the Lord, but then we eat of it as well, reminding us, God, my hope, my sustenance actually comes from this covenant sacrifice I have between you and I. But the priest would then take hyssop. It's It's actually part of the mint family. It looks a little bit like lavender. They're sort of distant cousins, only evidently this is way more fragrant, and it grows mostly in the Middle East. And these bushes can grow up to six to nine feet tall. They take these long branches. If we can go back to that last slide. uh, They would take the long branch, and they would dip it in the blood that they had drained. And then as you stood in front, they would sprinkle you with it. Right? It's the giant paintbrush uh, flinging blood over you, saying, you're covered. The depths of your sin has been covered. From head to toe, you have been sprinkled. How many times do we read uh, in Scripture allusions to being sprinkled? It's this picture of coming uh, before the sacrifice and having the blood applied to us. And God says... You can't wash your own sin away. It has to be the blood of sacrifice. And so David says, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. If I try and do it myself, I can't fix it. There's some beautiful imagery. We're not going to take time to go too far into it. But uh, in Jewish tradition, you'll see this carried through even into Jesus' time where this washing had become a ritual. Just one more religious thing that we do. So they had ritualistic hand washing that Jesus and his disciples get in trouble for. But why do your disciples eat without washing their hands? Don't you know this is what we do? Even baptism would grow from this, in this imagery that we're going to get of being washed clean. <clears throat> Interesting that this text tells us that Bathsheba uh, was purifying herself from her time of impurity. So she was going through her monthly cycle. And at the end of that, they were commanded to go through a time of washing so she could be restored. And it's in that washing that sin creeps in. All this is happening a thousand years before Jesus would come, and yet it's meant to point us to the fact, friends, that we can't wash ourselves. We can't clean ourselves. You can't fix yourself. It has to be something that God accomplishes. And so verse 17 is this beautiful foreshadowing of the new covenant where he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The last psalm we're going to look at is Psalm 32, and I want us to pull apart several different parts within us as you're turning there. Oh, for those who have been sprinkled by the blood of the Lamb, the blessing of forgiveness. For those who are included in his household, the blessing of conviction. It is God's kindness to bring your sin to your attention. It is God's kindness to let the wheels fall off of your life so that you will stop and look to him. The blessing of confession, that we get to confess our sins. The blessing of God's deliverance, and in the end, the blessing that God gives to the upright. Let's read this together. Psalm 32, 
Maskil of David, probably a musical designation. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The one who is forgiven, the one whose sin is covered, the one whose sins are not counted against him. Because again, we say, oh God, if you did that for me, I can't stand. But why are they not counted against you? Because they've been paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's his blood that has sprinkled and covered us. We stand pure in heart before God. That means as we approach him, we can do that with no deceit, no hiding, and no cover-up. Yet how frequently do we try and do all of that? We cover our sins, we hide our sins, and then when others try and help us, point us towards the gospel, we deceive them about our sins. Verse 3, for when I kept silent, when I decided I was not doing that, I'm not confessing, I'm not repenting, I'm certainly not bringing anybody else in on this. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. Then he says, stop and think about that. Selah. Stop and contemplate. Christian, that the more you hide your sin, the more it consumes you from the inside out. There was a time in David's life, and I guarantee there's a time, and maybe it's now, in your life, when there has not been that openness, that transparency before God. And in fact, you did keep silent. What was the first thing Adam and Eve did when they sinned? Genesis 3, verse 10. I heard the sound of you, God, walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. Oh, what foolish arrogance. Because we can't hide anything from God. Hebrews 4, 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to his eyes, the eyes of whom... We will all give an account. I don't care how good of a cover-up artist you are. You stand naked before God. So God in his grace brings conviction. Well, this is kindness. He he causes our bones to waste away. He doesn't let us uh, sit satisfied and happy in our sin. He makes us miserable, groaning. His hand was heavy upon me and my strength is gone is how David describes it. Look at verse 5 and consider the blessing of confession. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you will forgive the iniquity of my sin. Stop and think about that. How often have we covered it up and it destroyed us? But he goes, listen, when I did confess it, when I turned from that sin, you wiped away all the guilt of that sin. It's just gone. You don't have to carry it anymore. Christian, if you walked into this room with guilt attached to the sins of your past, you don't have to walk out with it. 
Rather than hiding sin, rather than living in shame, I can freely, joyfully, trusting in the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus on my behalf, confess and acknowledge my sin to God and to faithful brothers and sisters, and you will forgive my sin completely. Therefore, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other that you may be healed, for the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, James 5, 16 says. As if that wasn't enough, Romans verse, chapter 8, verse 34 says, If we do that, who is there who can condemn us? For Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. And right now, not only has his blood sprinkled you, he's interceding for you. Verse 6 and 7, look at the blessing of deliverance. Therefore, Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Oh, if you wait until this life is so overwhelming that it has driven you into despair, that is not the first time you want to reach out towards God. Oh, may they pray now while you may be found, for surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me in trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Think about that. God delivers his people. God surrounds his people. God upholds his people. But hear the warning. Do it now. Don't wait. Don't live your life half in and half out of the kingdom of God. Don't wait until you're in the moment of trouble Surely the rush of great waters overwhelming you, disorienting you, because he says they shall not reach him. Reach for him now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Look at verse 8 through 11, the blessing that is on the upright. Not the upright because they are intrinsically good in themselves. The upright because he has upheld them with his mighty right hand. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. This is God speaking to his people. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule, without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and a bridle, or it will not stay near you. How many Christians does that describe? If God doesn't keep the bit in their mouth, they drift so quickly. Man, if that's you in this room this morning, if that's the description that best describes your Christian life, you do good uh, for this period of time, and then you drift right back to the thing that you actually love the most, I would challenge you to see if you're actually in the faith. I don't want to make you doubt your true and genuine salvation. I want to make you doubt your false conversion. Well, I prayed a prayer when I was six years old. I haven't loved God, His Word, or His people since then, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to go to heaven. Search your heart. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 
Here's the truth to all those who belong to God. God, through His Spirit and His Word, will guide you and will watch over you, and it is a personal watching. Oh, how many people today look for the answer to all of their medical issues by getting on something like WebMD or something else even less trustworthy and self-diagnosing? You started with a headache, and 15 minutes later, you're pretty sure it's brain cancer, right? Why? Because it's impersonal. Don't get on WebMD. Just skip it entirely. No, he says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I will watch you every step. This is a personal God relating to his people. That does not mean he will keep you from hard times. It means he will keep you from self-inflicted sorrows that the wicked have. Oh, through our wickedness and our sin and our selfishness, we train wreck everything around us, don't we? I mean, not us, but other people do that. Yet here's the promise. God will surround you with steadfast love. Let's fill in the blank for you. God will surround me with his steadfast love. That's that Hebrew word, kased, as I trust in him. If you refuse to trust in him, if you drift from him, friends, he will let you walk through self-inflicted sorrow until you look to him. Oh, but what a beautiful picture we find in that imagery of that Hebrew word, kased. A commanded love, a steadfast love that God literally sends out to look for you. As we wrap this up, I I just want to shift us from David, from the author of these psalms, to look to Jesus. David knew what it was to betray one of his closest friends. Jesus knew what it was to be betrayed by his closest friends. Even to the point of death. Not because of his sin, but because he came to bear the sin upon the cross of all those who would trust in him to be that final, complete sacrifice that you and I can't offer to God on our own. In place of all the bulls that said, uh, David said, if I can get this right, God, you you just wait and watch the sacrifice I'm going to do. And Jesus says, it's all me. It's not going to be sacrifice over and over, me atoning, me fixing it. No, Christ is the perfect forever sacrifice. He offered himself to cleanse you from your unrighteousness. All the wickedness, all the shame that you're still carrying around, you can be sprinkled with his blood and be forever free of that guilt and shame. And Here's what Isaiah 53 says. This is so upside down, almost unbelievable. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, it was the will of the Lord, of Yahweh, God Almighty, to crush him. God's will was to crush his son, that your sins might be forgiven. He, God, has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and his days shall be prolonged. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isaiah 53, 4-6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Friend, when you refuse to confess your sin, when you refuse to repent of your sin, you're saying, Jesus, I don't care about your sacrifice. I would trample over your sacrifice because I'm a better Savior than you are. I can sort this thing out. Oh, that is dangerous 
thin ice. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. Which was true. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, but he was pierced for our transgressions, not his own. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the beating, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with those wounds, we are healed, eternally healed, eternally saved, eternally ransomed. And here's why, because all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned again and again, every one of us, to his own way. The Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity, the sin of us all. we got like five minutes and we're done, but I, I want you to really pay attention to this. If pride or shame are keeping you from walking in full freedom, in forgiveness that leads to praise, where you look back at the sin that once held you captive and when you look at it now, it doesn't bring shame, it brings praise. Can you believe what God has delivered? Can you believe that God would take a wretch like me and make him his son and make him his daughter? This is amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It should call forth praise within your heart. If that's not your story, repent and come to the cross. Not an invitation, it is a command of God, come to the cross because the alternative is dire. You will stand before God under the full weight and penalty of your sin if it hasn't been paid in Jesus. Your sin will keep you in darkness. It will keep you groaning and wasting away. Oh, hear the call today, repent and be free from it. Your sin affects not just you. It's spilling over to other people. The grace of God is abundant and it pours out of your life on those around you. So does your sin. It is pouring out on everyone around you. It is poisoning not only your own life, but those who are nearest to you. And first and foremost, it is against God. Not just them. It's against God. Repent and come to the cross. Unbeliever, I'm glad you're here. We say this every week, and I think you probably don't believe us. We're actually glad you're here. Not because of some religious thing. We think you're religiously better because you came to church. Certainly not because of some numerical thing where we think we're the best church in town because we can get as many people as we can. Not that at all. I'm glad that you're here because what we're talking about is good news. Every person you know has been broken by sin. And apart from the loving, saving power of Jesus Christ... Ephesians 2 says they're dead in their sin. And even worse, one day they will stand fully convicted guilty of their sin before a holy and righteous judge who sits on the throne of heaven and he will say, depart from me. So unbeliever, I want you to hear these words really quickly. If you don't trust in Christ, you will one day be cast away. to the believers who are in this room. And yet you're not walking in confession. You're not walking in repentance and penitence. Here's what's happening in you. Not that you'll be cast away. We never fear and pray as believers what David did. Cast me not away from your presence. Why? Because God saves to the uttermost. 
Here's what sin is doing in your life. It is robbing you of your joy. The joy of your salvation is gone. And that joylessness is overwhelming every other aspect of your life. And here's the answer. For unbeliever and believer, come to the cross. Come to the sufficient sacrifice. Come be sprinkled by the blood of Jesus that not just covers your sin, but blots out permanently, forever, removes the iniquity and the guilt and the shame that you have lived in. Friend, you can be free of it this morning. Here's a warning, though, before we close. Billy Graham said this, If your sorrow is because of certain consequences which have come on you or your family because of your sin, this is remorse and not repentance. If, on the other hand, you are grieved because you have also sinned against God and His holy law, then you're on the right road. So here again the warning, hidden sin will destroy you, but God hears your cry for mercy. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. He forgives and he cleanses all those who trust in him. Come to Jesus. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we acknowledge in this moment the depths of our sin. These have not just been mistakes that we have made, bad choices we have made, God. These have been sinful, rebellious rejections of what our hearts know is true because you have written your law upon our hearts. You have inscribed eternity within us. You have put your glory on display so that all creation testifies and declares that there is a God who demands our obedience, and we have not obeyed. So we confess before you, O God, our sin. We confess our hardness of heart. We confess our rebellion against your will and an idolatrous demand for our own will. We thank you, O God, that in your kindness you have granted conviction of sin. You have opened our eyes to see the darkness, the desperation, the destruction that our sin has decimated everything that we loved in our life, everything that was good in our life. Lord, our sin is wrecking it. So we repent. We turn from that sin. We don't just feel bad about it, although we do, but we turn from that sin. We turn towards you. We put our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ, the one true perfect sacrifice who did what we could not do, and that is live a perfect life. And therefore, as the perfect man bear my sins and the sins of all those who sit here who have trusted in him, who are so far from perfect that we say with David, my sin is always before me. Jesus, you took those to the cross and in your very flesh, in your hands and your feet, you nailed our sin to the cross. As Isaiah would describe a thousand years before, our sins were literally beat into your flesh, ripping the skin from your flesh. And in those wounds, in the sacrifice of the perfect sinless lamb who did not deserve it, I'm free. 
And not just free, I'm healed. We say our trust is in you. Oh God. Before you lift your heads, just with bowed heads and closed eyes, I want you to answer the question in your heart, is that me? Have I chosen to put my trust in Christ? Or have I refused to confess? Have I refused to repent? Have I trusted only in myself? Friends, you've heard the warning this morning. I beg you now, trust in Christ. I beg you now, fix your hope on Him. If you'd lift your eyes and look at me, but one of the mistakes that we have made in the church in modern times, we've made two mistakes. One of them is convincing you that the answer to all of your problems is some altar call. Right? We'll turn down the light so no one can really see you. It's an anonymous coming to Jesus. We'll set the mood by playing the right type of music. If we've got a fog machine, we'll throw that sucker on because that makes it better. And then you come and you, you sort of pray the repeat after me bit and you cry a little bit because your life sucks at the minute and then you go home going, yeah, I think I fixed it. That's why we don't do altar calls at this church. We call you week after week, come to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Set your heart on Jesus. This is a day by day, week by week commitment to walk in obedience and discipleship before the Savior that two minutes at the altar doesn't fix. That's the first mistake. Here's the second. We've said you can do this all by yourself, anonymously. What does it look like to come to Jesus? Well, I confess my sin only to Jesus. And we look, we look at other denominations, denominations who we would have giant theological problems with, and say, well, I don't confess my sins to a priest. I confess my sins to God. Well, you're disobedient, because Scripture says, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you may be saved. We've said you can come to Jesus all by yourself in secret and never tell anybody. And I'm telling you right now, it doesn't work. So we're going to do what we don't usually do. And if that's you this morning, and you have either not trusted in Jesus up to this point, and you know that you're not a Christian, you need to trust him now. Or you have been a Christian, God has worked to save you, and yet you've been living in sin and unfaithfulness, and you're convicted this morning that you need to turn from that and repent. I want you to stand up with the lights on and brothers and sisters surrounding you, because here's what the enemy's convinced you. If I do that, I'm out. They won't love me. They won't like me. They won't trust me. They won't want anything to do with me. And what we find in Scripture was promised today, he'll surround you with his love. And part of that love is he'll surround you with his people. So I want you to take your courage in your bare hands. If that's you this morning and you are far from God, you are distant from God, you are cold towards God, you've been cultivating sin, stand up from where you are right now and come stand right up here. And we're going to do what God's word said and we're going to surround you right now. Come on up. We don't do this lightly.
here's what we're going to do. We're just going to take a couple minutes. We normally uh, confess together in, in the words of one of the creeds, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. We're going to set that aside this morning before we come to the table of the Lord. And I want brothers and sisters right now on the ground surrounding you just to begin to pray for brothers and sisters standing next to you. If you have sin and you've come and you need to confess it, I want you to start. Right? Don't let somebody else start for you. God, I confess my sin. God, I'm asking for your forgiveness. And when the person is done praying, those who are standing with them, jump right in and let's pray for them. Let's bless them. And then in a little bit, we're going to sing together. We're going to celebrate that God brings sinners to his table and makes them sons and daughters. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.